morning, everybody. Uh, before we get started today, I want to encourage you not to read too far into the title because you might get the wrong idea about where we're going today. Uh, let me encourage you, though, to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to keep that passage waiting in the wings, uh, but today's introduction to the message is actually a history lesson, and it's going to tie in later. Um, who in here can tell me what people typically in the West typically celebrate on October 31st? Halloween, Halloween. right. I, I like that you actually raised your hand. Yes, <laughs> he's like, I'm a teacher. But without saying it out loud, does anyone know of another famous event that occurred on that day in history? Raise your hand if you know. A few of you do. Okay, some of you are probably familiar with the name Martin Luther. Uh, not King Jr., but the original Martin Luther, just simply Martin Luther. He was a German monk who was ordained into the Roman Catholic Church in 1507. Uh, Martin was a very scrupulous guy. I think today he'd be classified as having OCD um, because he used to drive his confessor crazy because his confessions were incredibly long. At times they would last for hours. And sometimes he would turn around after walking out and you can kind of picture his confessor going, and he would be, oh, I forgot. And he would turn around and come back in and confess something else. And at some point in his, his, uh, his ministry, Luther became aware of the writings of Augustine, or Augustine, it depends on how you pronounce it, who was a 4th century bishop in northern Africa. Uh, he was a bishop of a place called Hippo, um, and he was a great theologian. He wrote a whole lot about the Christian faith, although the church had actually only recently canonized him. The, the, the Catholic Church canonized um, Augustine about a thousand years after he lived. Um, and after, doing, after reading a lot, and doing a whole lot of thinking, Martin Luther wrote a series of assertions, which were later uh, called the 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the door of a chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. This was on October 31st, 1517, so 505 years ago. Now, this was not uh, a very unusual act, okay? Because back then, when people would, would tack things to the door of the church, that was or the chapel, that was kind of like, like a modern-day bulletin board in a public place. They would just put that somewhere, um, and it was, it was kind of like putting up a notice for people. Some of you who remember this, back before the internet was the internet, there were things that people had called bulletin boards that were online. You could go, and you, do you remember this? You go, before we had chat rooms, it's kind of like a chat room, but uh, I mean, I was, I was about 10 when I was first introduced to these and that was back when you get that, you know, the, you know, and all those weird sounds. Now you just, it's instantaneous, but back then, anyway. Um, so this is how people would get the word out about something that they wanted to discuss. It was, it was you know, today people, people post things uh, on social media for comment, and it's a similar practice, okay? So the purpose of nailing his 95 theses to the door of the chapel was to get conversations started about a practice of the church that he was working for, but he was concerned that this practice was unbiblical and even immoral. Now, contrary to popular belief, Luther was not out to make a name for himself. He was not out to cause a schism in the church. He was actually making an effort toward reform in the church because of a specific practice. And if we were to boil down the basic points of his 95 assertions or the 95 theses, they could probably be summarized like this. The overarching theme 
was that the church was misusing her authority. Okay? And when we look at the very early church in the book of Acts, we see a very different church from the vast institutionalized church of Rome that had become a, a world-dominating force in the Middle Ages. You know, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the church from about the Middle Ages on was, was more about wealth and power. And Luther was, was concerned that he was seeing inconsistencies with with what he saw in Scripture and what he saw in the church because the common people were being spiritually exploited. And as the church was storing mass amounts of earthly treasure, Martin insisted that the true treasure of the church is the gospel message, which is the good news about God's Son, Jesus Christ. He believed that the message of Christ, crucified for the sins of mankind and resurrected from the dead, was being downplayed and he also realized, as Scripture teaches, that it is the gospel by which people come to know the Lord and be saved. It's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And frankly, many, many professing Christian churches are in the same place, even today, putting social agendas ahead of the gospel of Christ. Luther also insisted that we enter heaven by God's grace, rather than by our works or, or the works of other saints. This is probably the largest disconnect between true and false Christianity. Anyone insisting that we somehow earn our justification in God's sight, as opposed to receiving it as a gift by grace, that is, is heresy. It is heresy to say that we can earn our justification before God. That's exactly what was being taught at that time in the upper echelons of Rome. And in fact, at that time, the church was officially teaching something called a treasury of merit, which went something like this. Some of the saints were so good that they actually were better than what God required to get into heaven. And so they stored up some additional credits, like some spiritual brownie points, and then the, the, the Pope and other clergy could bestow those on whomever they wished to forgive sins. Now, not surprisingly... They would offer some of these credits to people who were willing to pay for them. Okay, so rich people then would sin all they wanted and then turn around and give money to the church, and so the higher-ups of the church would forgive those sins. This practice was the practice that Luther was so against, it was called the selling of indulgences. Indulgences. And it got to be so lucrative for the church, they began a campaign of selling these so-called indulgences, in other words, we'll indulge your sin, okay, to pay for St. Peter's Basilica, which was a ginormous cathedral that was being built. Now, the problem which Martin Luther saw is that indulgences are not just unbiblical, it's anti-biblical. There is no amount of money in the universe that can pay off even one sin. Only the blood of Christ is valuable enough to pay for sin. And yet, the church was telling poor folk if they would just pay a little money, then one of their loved ones would be released from purgatory. And Luther realized that this was not only bad theology, this was spiritual abuse. And on top of that, he argued, why wouldn't the Pope release people from purgatory for free out of love if he had the power to do that? I think it's a good question. Just like these, you know, the so-called faith healers that, 
that knock people over by smacking them on the forehead. If they have the ability to heal anyone they want, why are they charging people to fill stadiums instead of walking into a hospital? Anyway, indulgences were the driving force, the driving reason behind the 95 Theses, but these were arguably the main points that he tried to convey, these, these points up here. Now, the funny thing is he intended to start a conversation, not a reformation, okay? But because his assertions were valid, and there was a fairly recent invention, it wasn't that recent, it was about 80 years or so before, but, but in those days, historically, that's fairly recent, called the printing press. You guys are familiar with that. Johannes Gutenberg, right? And so this, this fairly recent invention on the world stage suddenly made him go viral before going viral was cool, right? They printed off these, these 95 theses as pamphlets and just spread them all over Germany. So Martin got famous without meaning to. Now over the next four years, uh, from about 1518 to 1581, kind of during that time period, the Roman church began an official inquisition uh, into Martin Luther. And that was to, to examine his claims. And of course, they didn't sit well with the Pope because he was being called out. He didn't like it. And so he issues a papal bull, which is a, an edict, where he calls Luther a heretic. Okay. Well, Martin was irritated because he was still a Catholic monk. But he truly believed he was on the side of Scripture, which he was. And so when the edict came to Wittenberg, he and his students promptly burned it. And that understandably ruffled some feathers back in Rome, right? And so the Pope excommunicated him, which was to be understood to mean that Luther was no longer in the church and thus condemned to hell. Now, Luther wasn't happy to hear this, but he also didn't want to shift his position because he still believed that people got into heaven by God's grace through faith, as Scripture teaches, and not because the Pope said so. And so he kept preaching, and he even got more mouthy. And finally, the Roman church called him to come to a meeting called the Diet of Worms. Now, it looks like Diet of Worms, which is kind of gross, okay? I know that, but it was basically, this is a large gathering of religious leaders and clergy, and they served as a council to either excuse or condemn someone for heresy. Worms was the place where the, the Diet was, was held. And, and back then, being called a, a, a heretic very well meant being tied to a wooden stake and having brush piled on you and being set on fire. And Luther went voluntarily, and the council demanded that he recant and he asked them for a night to pray about it. Think about it. And the next day he famously said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. Now remarkably, he was allowed to leave. Because for a couple of weeks, the powers that be were afraid of executing him because they were afraid what was called the common estates would rebel. Against them, And in the meantime, there was this friendly kidnapping. There was this rich Saxon lord. His name was, uh, was, was Frederick. I don't remember what he, he was, the Duke of something or other. But anyway, uh, he brought Luther to Wartburg Castle, and he refused to let him go home because he didn't want to see him get arrested and killed. And around that time, Luther began this amazing project of translating the Bible from Latin, which almost no one spoke except clergy, into the common language of the German people, which was German. Thank you. Thank you, both of you who uh, said that. And that, friends, is pretty much how the, what's called the Protestant Reformation began, okay? Now, by the way, if you guys remember Gary Black, he hasn't been here in a while, but some of y'all remember Gary, our Catholic friend that used to sit back here. Um, the, the, do you remember Gary? Please tell me you do. Shaved head, he used to have a beard, tattooed, awesome guy. Anyway, a couple of years ago, uh, for Christmas, 
he gave me a biography of Martin Luther, which was written by Eric Metaxas. Uh, and I, it, it was fascinating. It was just fascinating. I highly recommend that you read up on the Reformation if you ever want to know more about the history of the church. But anyway, from Luther to Calvin and Zwingli and Wycliffe and Owen and, and Edwards and all through the years, okay, the gist of the Protestant Reformation has rested on five solas, okay? Meaning five principles that are basically agreed on across the board by the reformers, and that was most of the people I just named. Um, the first is sola scriptura, which means that the Bible is our sole authority on matters of faith and practice. This does not mean that we ignore church tradition, okay? Church tradition is valuable, but what it means is if or I should say perhaps wherever church tradition deviates from Scripture, we trust the Bible over the traditions of man. Even if, even if those traditions are almost as old as the New Testament, they're not inspired Scripture. If you've read the anti-Nicene or the post-Nicene fathers, um, Arrhenius, Tertullus, those guys, they, they were very godly men, but they were not inspired Scripture like the Bible. Okay? The second sola is sola, sola Christus, meaning that we believe only Jesus can save, as opposed to a church authority who claims to have a say about whether or not a person goes to heaven or hell. Okay? Jesus said, he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And the Bible says there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Now, the third is sola gratia, meaning that we are saved by God's grace rather than any merit of our own. This is still a pretty major sticking point, honestly, in Christendom. We do not believe that we can do anything to earn our right of standing before God, which incidentally ties into the next one. The fourth is sola fide, meaning we are justified by faith alone. In the sense, this is important, in the sense, okay, that Paul uses the word justified in Romans 4. Okay? That means forensically we are declared righteous before God by faith, credited. Now, in the James 2 sense, of course, because in James 2 it talks about, it uses the word justified very differently, and it says we're not justified by faith alone. In the James 2 sense, uh, the reformers were very fond of saying we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. If you have no works, your faith is dead. Okay? If you have no works, you have no faith. Your so-called so faith is dead in the water. But the fact that we are considered not guilty in God's sight is based entirely in faith. The fifth sola is sola deo gloria, like the song we sing, which means that everything that we do is for the glory of God. And our doctrine and our theology is to follow suit. And in a sense, I think that the, the neo-reformed tradition of our nation is kind of rediscovering this, honestly. Um, because Christendom has become very man-centered in the last century and a half or so. Maybe, maybe before that. That's just, I think, when people started noticing it. And it's vital that we remember everything we do and everything God does is intended for his glory. I hope you know that. Okay, so, so, so there's your introduction for today. Um, we're going to go to Acts 19 now. And, um, 
before we start, we're going to pray. God, I, I ask in Jesus' name that there's a lot that, that we just covered here uh, in the historical portion, I guess, of the, the sermon. But I pray that as we look at Acts 19, that it, it sinks in, God, just how, how great a reformation you do in the hearts of mankind. And I pray that you help us to remember, uh, Lord, that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. All right, now we're going to read this story, and instead of breaking it down to the atomic level, um, we're going to try to stay big picture here, because I believe that God's message for us today is to be found at the 30,000-foot level, and I hope that'll make sense as we read, okay? Starting in verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, if you recall, uh, last week we were introduced by our text, to Apollos. He was a very powerful preacher. It says he was fervent in spirit, but he only knew the baptism of John. However, it says he preached accurately about the things of Jesus, meaning that he understood the gospel message, although Priscilla and Aquila had to explain it to him more accurately, okay, or more perfectly. But during that same time period, Paul travels to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. This whole section is a really odd passage because there's just so much information missing. And it's really tempting for us, I think, to to try to formulate doctrine out of a text like this, but I think we don't want to get too deep into the weeds with every little detail here, which is part of the reason for the overarching uh, 30,000-foot, so to speak, Look, but instead of being dogmatic about it, I want to share two points of view on this passage, okay? The first is based on the two words, disciples and believed, okay? Some commentaries uh, will tell you that these men were all saved despite, you know, not having all the information in a similar vein as Apollos, okay? Since disciples without a qualifier typically means disciples of Jesus, Many will will say and and do say that these men who had not yet experienced the outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the the apostles saw, right, in the Jews at at Pentecost in Acts 2. The Gentiles saw, he saw that at Caesarea in Acts 10. Um, They're going to say that that they did have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but not yet the manifestation. Uh, John MacArthur, for instance, he compares them to Old Testament saints who were saved because they looked forward to the Messiah Uh, Others are going to say, well, these men were not really Christians yet because they hadn't experienced the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which meant they had not yet received the Holy Spirit indwelling. And they point to the response, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Um, Now, the construction of the Greek here, I'm I'm very quickly, I know sometimes I don't want your eyes to glaze over when we talk about the Greek, but the construction of the Greek here, uh, it may indicate they were saying they didn't know the Holy Spirit had yet been given, okay, because John 7 where Jesus is, is talking to the people and he refers to the Holy Spirit, it says the Holy Spirit, uh, it was the same construction in Greek, it says was not yet. Well, we know the Holy Spirit was in the sense of existing, but it had not yet been given. And so some people say that what they were saying was we didn't even know the Holy Spirit had been poured out. Okay, But either way, it's fair to point out, I think, the Holy Spirit is not the focus of the gospel. Jesus is the focus of the gospel. Okay, so let's continue. We're going to see what Paul says. And he said, into what then were you baptized? 
And they said, into John's baptism? And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. Now, for Paul to say that, it makes one wonder if he was telling them something they already knew or if he was just sharing something brand new to them. Did they understand who Jesus is and what God had done through him? If so, they knew the gospel. If not, they didn't. But it does bring to mind a comparison between the baptism of John and the baptism under the new covenant. So we're going to do that really quickly here, okay? What are some similarities and differences between God, uh, excuse me, John's baptism and the New Testament baptism into Jesus Christ or into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? First of all, both baptisms are described as being unto remission of sins, a.k.a. forgiveness. So the baptism is either to express that one has received forgiveness or in order to receive the forgiveness. Both, both meanings are possible from the Greek word ice that's translated there. Um, in fact, both meanings uh, you see in different translations. Some say unto, some say for. Okay? So they have that in common. Both baptisms are unto the remission of sins, and both are also intended for those with Faith, okay? Neither baptism was ever given to someone who had no desire to honor God through repentance. At least not if the, the baptizer knew that, right? And we can know this from the descriptions in the Gospels of people who came to be baptized. And we're going to see more of that shortly here. But, but first, let's see how these two baptisms differ, okay? The baptism of John points forward to Jesus in that it prepares the way for the coming Messiah. You know, as it says in Isaiah the prophet, John came to make straight the paths for the Lord. He was, he was to appear before Christ or before Christ's public ministry to prepare the hearts of people for the Christ to appear. And in Matthew 3, we read about John. It says that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, which certainly is a sign of faith. It's at least evidence, right, to confess your sins. But when he saw many of the, I love this guy, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, oh, we're so glad to see you. No, he said, you brood of vipers. <laughs> I've heard it said, you baby snakes, you know. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, John wasn't just handing out baptism to people who didn't have faith or who had no intention of repenting. He was there for the express purpose of getting the world ready for Jesus. Luke 3 says, as the people were in expectation and, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Again, this, this is a sign of faith. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is after me is mightier, he who is coming. He says, and I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, he's pointing, he's pointing to Jesus, whose ministry was yet to be realized and yet to be revealed. But this, folks, once you remember, was still under the old covenant 
because Jesus had not yet been crucified. But after Jesus died, John's baptism was superseded by the New Testament baptism, which points back to Jesus. We see that first in Acts chapter 2. Instead of preparing for the Messiah, this, this new baptism actually proclaims the Messiah's death and resurrection. Now, how so? This is what Paul explained, or at least how he explained it in Colossians 2. I'm going to read this to you. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In other words, spiritually and inwardly rather than physically and externally. Okay, By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been, in other words, he's, he's saying, this is what I'm talking about. Having been buried with him in baptism. See, that, that, that's our death. Into which you also were raised with him. That's our resurrection. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, when we undergo baptism... On this side of the cross, it's a picture of what Jesus did for us. And more than that, we are identifying with him in his death and burial and resurrection. And Paul continues to say, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Having forgiven. It's a done deal. To tell us die, it is finished. I love that song. It is done. It is finished. Christ is one. He is risen. Grace is here. He has triumphed over death forever. Mm. Don't lose sight of that fact, though, that you, you were dead, he says. You are dead in your trespasses. Remember, dead people don't do anything. That's important. That'll come back on around. Anyway, uh, let's get back to Acts 19. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I think this is likely the same thing as being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think he's just using baptized in the Lord Jesus as, as kind of a euphemism because all the disciples were instructed by Jesus Christ himself to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But after all, God is three in one, right? They share the same authority, so don't let that phrase throw you. I know there's some denominations that will baptize in the name of Jesus and the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pretty sure that's interchangeable, but um, as long as you, you, know, you know what you're doing here, well, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anyway, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, a lot of folks think that there's something really significant about there being 12 people about. And I don't think it is. I think if Luke had been more specific, maybe, but he wasn't. He says there was about 12. That's kind of like saying, eh, around a dozen, Right? So instead of going off on that rabbit trail instead, I, I want to just, let's take a moment to appreciate that middle chunk there, okay? And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, says, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, whether they had the Holy Spirit before that or not, at this point, they obviously did. But still, for some people, the question will remain, but were they saved before? In other words, if they had died before that moment, 
would they have gone to heaven? After all, Romans 8 says that without the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. I want to sidestep that question by saying, I don't think that's the point of this story. You know, we want to break everything down to a formula, but God doesn't always do things in the same way. Especially not in this period, you know, where the, the old covenant's being phased out by the new in one generation. You know, again, John MacArthur, he points out that this group kind of appears to represent Old Testament saints. You know, we, we've had the Jews in Acts 10, the Gentiles in Acts, excuse me, Jews in Acts 2, Gentiles in Acts 10, Old Testament saints here in Acts 19. It's just, this is the last time in the book of Acts that we read about the Holy Spirit being given with a demonstration of power like this. It, it's, it's the last instance of tongues and prophesying in this kind of context, okay? And notice, please, that in Acts chapter 2, people seem to receive the Holy Spirit upon being immersed. That was the Jews. Whereas in Acts chapter 10, the people with Cornelius received the Holy Spirit prior to being immersed. And here, they receive the Holy Spirit in power when Paul lays his hands on them. Did I just knock something over? Sorry. In the book of Acts, it is really hard to discern a universal formula for receiving the Holy Spirit. But years later, Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, and he makes this statement, which I find to be very interesting. Referring to Jesus Christ, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, many will argue that believing in Him includes getting baptized. I'm just going to say we don't, say, we don't see that spelled out right here. But I want to be careful, friends, not to presume on the Word of God. We need to recognize baptism is a condition that God commands, and it's not optional for any believer. Okay? We see the example right here in this passage. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hearing what? Hearing that they had been called to go beyond John's baptism and accept the baptism that Christ commanded. And I want to encourage any of you in this room, if you're, if you're listening or if you're watching online or if you're listening later on the podcast, if you have not been immersed as a believer into the Lord Jesus, that is something that you should do. That is something that God has commanded of you. You know, whenever baptism is mentioned in Scripture, we always, when it's new believers, we pretty much always see that, that it happens immediately upon faith. I know I've harped on this before, and forgive me if I'm beating a dead horse for some of you, but... I think that we sometimes do a disservice to people when we say, you know, we're not going to baptize them yet. We're going to wait until they're a little older. Or we're going to wait until you know, sometime next month where we baptize everybody. together." I, I feel like Scripture is so plain. If somebody puts their faith in Jesus, do it. I want you to just consider that. It's not something to be put off. Okay? Um, we're going to land this plane soon, but I want to ask you guys a question. Why do you think that Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit? You don't have to say it out loud. Just think about it. Why do you think Paul asked 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Do you think maybe there was just something missing from their experience? Or maybe he was sensing something wasn't quite right? You know, were they lacking some Christian characteristic that Paul would expect to see? We don't know. That's part of that missing information I was talking about earlier, but it'd be nice if we had some idea of what made Paul ask. But I want to suggest something to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. As much as we think about, you know, the Reformation as something that happened back in the 1500s, isn't it true that the greatest Reformation is when God turns a sinner into a new creation in Christ Jesus? I think that's worth an amen. That's the greatest reformation, friends. That is a huge miracle. To take what's spiritually dead and make it alive. I mean, remember what Colossians 2 said. We were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ. We didn't have anything more to do with that than a dead person has to do with responding to a defibrillator. Probably less than that. God takes a dead, wretched, rotten man and then reforms him into something new. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, that's talking about us. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are new. You're no longer a sinner in the eyes of God. I want you to think about this. Do we still sin? Yeah, we're still sinful people. But you know what? God doesn't see us that way. God chooses to view us as his, his saints, his hagion. Scripture calls us that, his holy ones. How do we know? Well, a few verses later, Paul says, For our sake, he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a mic drop moment. He did this so that we could live out lives as new creations. So now as, as the wheels touch down on the tarmac, let me ask one final question. If you were being observed by Paul, or just another random person, would someone wonder whether you had received the Holy Spirit based on your life, based on your speech, your patterns of behavior, if they could see a video of what you do when no one's looking? I'm, I'm not asking you that to guilt you. I'm asking you that to provide the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to convict us, which is what every single person in this room, including me, needs. We need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And just as a reminder, as we taxi off the runway, I want to read from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit, he says. He doesn't say fruits. I want to just point that out. This is not fruits, plural. It's not like you get to have some and not all of them. These are all things that we should be growing in. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, 
kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to show that great reformation that God has done within us and made us a new creation. And so, friends, let's live our lives as beacons of God's character to the world around us. This is what we're called to do. We, we don't need to tell the future. We don't need to speak in other languages to show that we have the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have those gifts, great, good for you. But all of us should have this. All of us should have this. We should be growing in these nine things. We should live in that, you know, not, not perfectly, but proficiently. Unless, of course, you don't have the Holy Spirit of God. So, so I ask, friend, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you done an about face? Have you turned away from your old life of, of sin and been obedient to him in a believer's baptism? Have you professed him before others? Are you living as the Spirit leads? Have you joined with other believers in the journey of faith? If not, today can be your day. Don't pass up a chance to, to gain the wonderful assurance of salvation and to live in joy with that. You know, God is, He's a good, good Father. He wants us to experience that wonderful assurance. And, and hell is real, folks. I don't want any of you to go there. I want to see all of you in heaven with Jesus. I, let's pray. God, um, I just thank you for this chance today to, to spread the word a little bit. God, I know that we all need more reformation. I know that as, as I look at your, your church, and I'm going to say your visible church, the professing church, not necessarily the invisible, the true church, but when I look and I see how many people in America claim to be Christians and yet how, how much like non-Christians we live. It's disturbing. It's sad. And we dishonor you. And I pray, Father, that all true believers will stand firm on your word and that we will show a, a, a lifestyle of godliness, of love and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, all of these things that we're supposed to do. God, help us not to attack other people and be judgmental and haughty and, and pridefully think of ourselves as better than anyone else. We are... We are people who do not deserve the mercy that you have given us, and yet we love it. We love you for it. We, we thank you for lavishing it on us, and I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who has not yet given their life to Christ, that they will do so.